Good morning, my name is Jaron. I'll be reading uh, from our scripture passage today from Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels when, <clears throat> who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jaron. You may be seated. Well, good morning. He is risen. It is so good to have you with us today. It is so good to be together um, of all days. The, the reason we gather each week on Sundays is because it was on a Sunday that our, our, our Lord rose from the dead. And so every time we gather, we are gathering in remembrance of Resurrection Sunday, but of all Sundays, this Sunday in particular is devoted to the idea of recognizing and realizing that we serve a living Savior, not a Christ stuck on a cross, not a Christ stuck in the grave, but a Christ who rose from the dead to show his power over everything. And so we're so glad that you're here with us this morning to celebrate with us, to remember these things, to learn from God's Word. Thank you for being with us, and welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you're here today. So if you're not already there, if you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. You may be wondering, as you're looking at this text, why we chose this particular text this morning as opposed to, for instance, verses 1 through 12 that specifically address uh, the resurrection account, the, the empty tomb, all of those sorts of things. And the reason we chose this text this morning is because it gives us such an honest glimpse into the reaction of ordinary, everyday, regular people to Jesus. On Good Friday, we remember the death of Jesus Christ when Jesus when Jesus, the God of the universe, who came incarnate in human flesh and human form, died. It's a day of grief. Grief at the suffering of a Savior, grief at the death on the cross, grief that the only person in the history of the world who did not deserve to taste death, tasted death infinitely on our behalf. 
And when Jesus Christ died on that day, the people who were there with him had a variety of responses, just like people do today. Some looked on just as bystanders. They had heard the name of Jesus. They had heard about his exploits. They had heard about his miracles. They had heard about his teaching. Perhaps they had interest. Perhaps they, diff- they didn't. But they stood there that day observing Jesus Christ on the cross. And they left disinterested. Unchanged. Unmoved. For them, Jesus was nothing more than a sideshow and a novelty act. And then there were those who, for a variety of reasons, explicitly rejected Jesus as Savior. They came that day and said to Jesus on the cross, here is the self-proclaimed King of the Jews, the self-proclaimed Savior, the self-proclaimed Messiah, and if you're so powerful, call down angels to get you off the cross. If you're so powerful, step down off the cross. And for those people, the death of Jesus Christ felt like vindication. Here he is, dead. What kind of Savior ends up that way? They were looking for a reason not to believe. And they found that reason at the cross. And finally, there were those there that day who loved and trusted in Jesus. And from this text, it appears that their response to the death of Jesus wasn't stoic resolve or unwavering faith, but shock and dismay. In other words, they reacted very likely how you and I might have reacted. How could it be that the Messiah, the Savior, the one who was going to redeem his people and usher in the new kingdom was now dead in front of them on the cross? And the followers of Jesus did what ordinary people do when someone they love dies. They held a funeral. They wrapped him in grave clothes. They laid him in a tomb and they rolled a large stone in front of the entrance to that tomb. And as that tomb was sealed, so too was sealed their fate. They believed. But in verses 1 through 12 of Luke chapter 24, we find the account of this particular group of women who come to the tomb of Jesus Christ. They arrive there to anoint his body with spices. Remember, this is the time at which a body begins to stink. They come to show their respect and to to lay spices on the body. And what they find instead is that the stone that was sealing this entrance, this massive stone that had been put there by Roman guards, had been completely shoved aside and the tomb itself was empty. They're greeted there by two men in dazzling apparel, is the description that's given to us in the Word of God. We find out in just a moment that they're actually angels. And the angels say to these women, He is not here, but He is risen. And you can imagine the confusion and the excitement and the curiosity and even the doubts that people have about this discovery. Even people who had entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ and hoped in Jesus Christ and loved Jesus Christ find themselves in this moment confused and doubting. The buzz about Jesus is back. People are talking. They're asking their questions. They're floating their theories. And here's what we find in verse 13 in the lives of these two individuals. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So here are these two disciples of Jesus. They had likely witnessed his crucifixion. Now they've heard the news of the empty tomb and were introduced to them, in fact, by name in verse 18. We're told that one of them, his name was Cleopas. And you might wonder why we're given the name of this individual who otherwise has no significance to the story and is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. 
Why does the Bible even bother mentioning his name? Well, according to Dr. Richard Baucom, a scholar from the University of St. Andrews, the New Testament likely includes these sorts of names because they were part of the eyewitness account. In other words, it's very likely that Luke was verifying the account of what actually happened on this day, and he had gone to this man named Cleopas and said, Cleopas, tell me about the day that you were walking on the road to Emmaus. Leave no detail out. And this is something that Luke does and that the New Testament writers do throughout the Gospels in particular. They're giving us these eyewitness accounts because they want you and I to know, even some 2,000 years removed, that this isn't just some group delusion and this isn't just some propaganda, but that the risen Jesus Christ appeared to people. He appears to the two on the road to Emmaus. He appears to the disciples in the upper room. He, just, he appears to the, to the gathering of 500 others. In all of these events, the Gospels are recording for us the reality of the fact that Jesus Christ actually physically rose from the dead. And what he's telling us and more particularly the readers at this time, is to the extent that you're concerned about the veracity of this account, go talk to Cleopas. By all means, check the story with those who were there. See, there are all sorts of people today who denounce the New Testament as just one more ancient book, subject to human manipulation, passed on by oral tradition, full of fictions and fairy tales and propagating an agenda. But in writing this, Luke is meticulously and studiously verifying his information. He wanted to be able to share these accounts with the original readers and with us with the absolute certainty that what he was saying was accurate. This is Luke's way of telling his audience, you can check my facts. And the location of this exchange matters as well. Notice where this takes place. These two men are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is about seven miles away. And that's important because there are some people who say, well, certainly Jesus was alive at this point, but perhaps he never actually died. Perhaps he just swooned, essentially collapsed and passed out from the suffering, was put in the grave, but wasn't actually dead. But if Luke's story here is true, imagine what that would mean. It would mean that somebody who was whipped with a cat of nine tails, punched and beaten brutally within an inch of his life, and ultimately crucified on a cross and speared in the side just for good measure, was able to only three days later go for a several-mile jaunt down a road. That doesn't happen. Now, here's why all of this matters. If the story of the resurrection was a fabrication... If it didn't happen, and if Jesus is not in fact alive today, then nothing else we read in all of the Bible matters. Because if God failed to do what he said he would do through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we have no hope and there is no purpose in studying this book. But if it is true, everything is different. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the event around which every other biblical doctrine is dependent and in which every hope for our salvation is anchored. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we worship an impotent God and we cling to an irrational faith. But with the resurrection of Jesus, we discover a God whose scope and power is unlimited, even extending to the very death of death and providing eternal life to those whom he loves. 
The resurrection of Jesus is the assurance of our own future resurrection and eternal life. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we only have hope in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all Jesus could do for us was give us good advice on how to live or set a good example for what our lives ought to look like or demonstrate what it is to love your enemies or be kind to those who despise you, if that's all Jesus did for you, then you are to be pitied, says the Apostle Paul. Because you didn't need the God of the universe to do that. But, in the words of C.S. Lewis, the resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in the book of Acts. The resurrection and its consequences was the good news which the Christians brought. The first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say they have seen the resurrection. And if they had died without making anyone else believe this gospel, no gospels would have ever been written. And so it follows that these two disciples are spending their time considering the death that they witnessed and the reports of the empty tomb. But notice, they're not convinced yet. Verse 15, And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. The resurrected Jesus appears to these two disciples as they're talking about him, and they did not recognize him, despite the fact that based on what they were about to say, they clearly knew and loved him. It appears that Jesus in this moment has veiled their eyes to keep them from knowing it was him. We don't know exactly why that is, but based on what he's about to say, it appears that Jesus wants to hear what it is that's on their heart and minds. What is it that they're thinking in this moment? What has them so depressed? And notice, it's in the middle of their sadness, the middle of their doubt, the middle of their worry and their disappointment that Jesus draws near. He doesn't just come to the people who were longing for him to come, he came even to those who doubted that he had returned. See, that's the Jesus of the New Testament. But unfortunately, it's a Jesus that many people do not know. Many tend to think of Jesus as being the one who draws near to the good people, the godly people, the religious people, the faithful people, the sacrificial people, the service-minded people, the people whose faith never wavers. On so many occasions over the years, I've had opportunity to talk to people about Jesus, and the response that I hear back is probably the same response that you have, which is, well, I'm not a very religious person, or I'm just someone who's more rational. As if only people prone to mystical belief could ever have a use for God. But here were these men who knew Jesus, yet found themselves doubting the words that he'd said. They'd likely heard Jesus predict his own death and resurrection. But now on the third day, after hearing a report of an empty tomb, they're already back to feeling sad. And even though they were talking to Jesus, they didn't have eyes to see him. Friends, nothing short of Jesus revealing himself to you can open your eyes to his presence, his goodness, his faithfulness, and his love. And I don't know where you're at today with your own belief. You may be here today waiting to make sense of your own life. 
waiting to come to some sort of rational conclusion about your purpose in this world. You may be thinking, well, when I'm older, I'll pursue faith. Once I've done my own thing, I'll, pr- I'll live my faith. Once, it's, once I'm done living the way that I want to li- live and then have need for Jesus, then I'll turn to him. Or maybe you find yourselves like these two men, sad, depressed, and disappointed, never expecting that Jesus would insert himself into your life in a most unusual way. But lest you think that Jesus is reserved for someone else, someone with more faith who has their life together and lives better than you do, Jesus is telling you in this text that he is here for you. And so Jesus asked the question to them, tell me what's going on. And our friend Cleopas answers, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Listen to this. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. There's their sadness. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and we found it just as the women said, but, but we didn't see him. And you can understand their heartbreak in this moment. They said, we hoped that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel, to lead us out of darkness into the light, to bring our nation into prominence, to be a savior of our people. But we saw him die, and we haven't seen him since. And now they say, it's been three days. Rumor had it that Jesus said he was going to rise after three days. Now it's been three days. The tomb is empty, but there's no sign of Jesus. You want to know why we're sad? They said to the stranger, because we don't think Jesus is alive. So we figured we should probably just head back home to Emmaus. Now on at least three separate occasions, Jesus had prophesied that he would be killed and would rise again three days later. And when they arrive at the tomb and find it empty, their first thought is, well, I guess that was all for nothing. And since we know how this story goes, it's easy to make fun of them or to poke fun at them, but they knew in that moment what we all know which is that when someone dies, they don't just get up and walk out of a tomb. In other words, their reaction was completely rational. They were just as skeptical as you and I would have been. These aren't ignorant, backward, ancient people who just believed in fairy tales. They were questioning, skeptical, evidence-oriented individuals just like us. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken? Was it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, these men were willing and ready to accept a Messiah on their terms. 
They were willing to accept a Messiah if it meant the restoration of Israel's prominence or a a new golden age of their ethnic identity. Verse 21, they said, we thought he was going to redeem Israel. But they could not grasp a Messiah that would die. They couldn't believe in a Messiah that was more concerned about their spiritual condition and their relationship with God than fulfilling their own agendas. They were ready to accept him for what he could do for them, but Jesus wanted them to accept him for who he was for them. So Jesus, in his grace in this moment, walks them through the Old Testament and shows them how all of it was about him. And he says to them, do you remember when you read in the book of Genesis about the sin of Adam and Eve and God came to Adam and Eve and said, said there's going to be one who's going to restore his people and the serpent is going to bite that Messiah's heel, but the Messiah will crush the serpent's head. And he explains to them that the biting of the heel was what happened on the cross. That in that moment, Satan thought he had won. Satan thought he had had the victory. But in the greatest twist of fate in the history of the world, Jesus Christ used his own death to ensure the death of death. To ensure the final victory over sin and over Satan. He says, do you remember when God told Abraham, I'm going to make a great seed come from you and and from you is going to come the hope of all the world, a spiritual family that is so numerous that you can't even count it? Jesus says, I am that seed. Do you remember when David was told that there was going to be a king he would worship? That the king David was going to worship his own heir. I am that heir. And going through all of the Old Testament as if it were page by page, Jesus shows them, this is all about me. See, wherever you are in your life today, Jesus is here and he's calling you. And not just as a companion or a friend, though he is that. Not just as a teacher or a confident, though he, confidant, rather, but though he is that, but he is with you today to be your Lord. He's here not only as the one who paid the penalty for your sin and made you righteous through his death on the cross, but the one who can bring life to what is dead. What power does the resurrection have that could change you so fundamentally? Well, if you were with us on Good Friday, you heard Dave talk about the fact that Jesus came both as the cure for what killed us spiritually and the source of life for what we most desperately need. In other words, imagine you have an unknown, incurable disease. The doctors have no idea how to help you, and you die. Your heart stops, your body gives out, you are buried and dead. And imagine then that after your death, a doctor develops a cure for the illness that killed you. Now, if the doctor injected that cure into a corpse, you're all set, right? No, you're still dead. See, spiritually, you and I were stillborn. Our soul was dead in trespasses and sins. The cross provided the cure for your sin. It paid the penalty that was due, but without the resurrection, it would have been ineffectual. 
What you needed was life. And that life was granted and guaranteed for those who know Jesus Christ through the resurrection. This is the reason why Jesus says you must be born again. You need new life. And through the resurrection, Jesus Christ guarantees that sin will never again kill us. Through the death and resurrection, we were released from the penalty of sin. We are being delivered currently from the power of sin. And someday we will be free from the very presence of sin. See, resurrection is not just the undoing of death. It is the death of death. And it's what, it's what led Lewis to write. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He, that is Jesus, is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything now is different because he has done so. So today, friend, Jesus stands before you just as he did before the travelers on the road to Emmaus. And the question for you is, will you receive him as the Savior and Lord that he is? Or will you fail to recognize him and continue to walk on? He invites you to know him today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, for your pursuit, that you come not just for those who are searching, as if even our search is something that we thought of, but that you come for those who are doubting and questioning and criticizing and skeptical. You came for those whose life is a mess, where sin has reigned, and where death has triumphed. And you come in as the undoer of all of those things. You don't just come with the cure, but you come to give life anew. God, we thank you that we can worship you today because of Jesus Christ. That we have access to the very throne room of God. That for those who know you, we have been brought in as brothers and sisters and you are not ashamed to call us such. And God, for those who are here today who do not know you, who stand on that road, hearing your explanation, hearing your invitation, and hearing your call. God, we pray that today they would not continue to walk unmoved. Would they not be like those who were there that day at the cross, who saw you and left disinterested, or who viewed your death as the vindication for their lack of belief? But rather, God, would you bring us down that road to see the resurrected Christ, that we serve a living Savior, that your love and your passion and your pursuit of us is as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. We thank you for your blessing and your pursuit of us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.